Hi everyone, this is the Supported Sobriety Podcast. I'm Matt, and I'm in recovery from an addiction to pornography. And I'm Katie, and I've been married to Matt and supporting him in his addiction for four years. We created this podcast to bring hope, healing, and greater understanding to both men struggling with pornography addiction and women who support someone struggling with an addiction. I upload episodes for men with pornography addictions. And I upload episodes for the women who are supporting their loved one. We share real stories from members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but anyone is welcome to listen, and we believe everyone can benefit from finding peace through Jesus Christ. We hope that this podcast can bring you closer to Jesus Christ and help you on your journey of recovery and healing. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Supported Sobriety. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, I am interviewing Kemper. I met Kemper over three years ago at an addiction recovery meeting. If I have learned anything from Kemper in the time since then, and we've gone to a lot of meetings together, it is that Kemper is consistent. He has been so consistent in working through the program, in attending meetings, and helping people. I learned a lot from the conversation that you're about to hear, but two things that stuck out to me were Kemper's honesty. He is so honest, and that makes him so real. As you'll see throughout his life, Kemper, he always had these situations where If he were to tell the truth, people would look down on him, but if he were to lie, he'd be lying to God and himself and to everyone, really. And he chose the path of being honest, and I think that makes him a really real person. I also learned from Kemper how important it is to connect with others, and I think that's really difficult at this time. It's something that a lot of people struggle with, and so I'm excited to share his thoughts on that and how we can connect better. I really enjoyed my interview with Kemper, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Kemper, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Just a daily grind, nothing too crazy. Watching my yeah. kid, watching my dog. So, how old is your your kid? Uh, so I have he's a 15 or 16 month old. His name's Jack, and uh, yeah, we we like him a little bit. Yeah. What is he up to these days? Basically, just getting into as much trouble as he can. He's he's walking now. He's uh, starting to kind of learn words and learning how to grab everything that we don't want to grab. And uh, yeah, that's about it. That's awesome. And tell me more about yourself and about your family. Okay. Uh, I've, so we're in uh, Vineyard, Utah. We've, I've been in Utah for, I think coming up on like six years and yeah, I've been married to my wife for almost three years and we have our, our kid, Jack. Um, we just got a dog who is, kind of insane sometimes and yeah I'm studying at UVU hospitality management I'm about to graduate supposed to be this semester things kind of got a little weird I think I'm gonna have to push it back one more semester but that's awesome and what are your plans after you graduate what are what are you guys gonna do isn't that the question that everybody wants to know um how yeah, we're all trying to figure that out <laughs> yeah so I, I had a, a full-time job kind of lined up but then it's kind of weird or at the, so I currently work at the Utah Valley Convention Center. I was supposed to uh, move up to a full-time position with COVID and everything with the events industry. It's kind of thrown that plan off a lot. So Man, that must be tough. Yeah. So apparently no one wants to be around a bunch of people these days, which is weird. Um, but yeah, so we're, I don't know, kind of trying to figure that out. I have a couple different things that I'm thinking about maybe like hotels maybe I'd like to stay in the events industry but yeah it's it's not like a 
short-term super viable option, but that's the end goal. Yeah, no, that's cool. And I think if you play the long game, I am sure things will hopefully get back to normal and, and eventually that will be the way to go. So I think that's cool. Yeah. Tell me a little bit just about your addiction, where it started, you know, how you've gotten to be where you are. Just kind of give us some history about you and your addiction. I feel like I have a pretty standard story um, for most people with pornography addiction. Um, when I was maybe like 12 or 13, uh, I was curious. Um, I had my parents divorced when I was pretty young. And for the majority of my um, growing up, my mom was a single mom. And so she didn't really have like the, the bandwidth to kind of be full-time worker, full-time mom, super vigilant, like able to monitor and kind of be aware of everything going on, which I fully don't blame her for. Like as a parent, I totally understand that it's hard with a husband and a wife and doing it by yourself with three kids. Like that's sounds insane to me. Um, but I had access to a computer um, and just curiosity just kind of pushed me into some stuff that as people with addictions know, like once you see it, it is addictive and you, it's, it's hard to kind of get it out of your mind and get it. It's hard to not be curious more and kind of search more. And so that kind of got me introduced into everything. And as a teenager with little to no self-control, like it's, you just keep going with something that feels pleasurable and helps you kind of feel in control and yeah so it's just it became an issue that way is that kind of what you had in mind yeah definitely and and where did it so where did it go from there so you kind of you got on early and um your uh, your parents were divorced it's probably a difficult kind of situation kind of a lot of freedom um on your end to you know kind of do you, I guess, indulge in your addiction? Um, so where did it go from there? Uh, so, yeah, so eventually my mom <laughs> like, did kind of find out, like, uh, and one thing that I feel like is a little different than me from a lot of people that I've, I've met that struggle with addiction is I didn't really have a problem with ever, like, lying about it. Like, my mom confronted me about it, and I was like, yeah, I've, I've seen some stuff. I, it has been kind of consistent uh, and my mom was obviously like she wasn't like cool have fun mm-hmm. but she she wasn't very she wasn't as shaming as I would have expected she was very supportive being like hey I understand it's a hard thing I think she she dealt with uh, an alcohol addiction growing up so she kind of understood what addiction was and she I mean it was like this is something you should change. Let's go see a therapist about it. Let's let's go through the 12-step program. So uh, I think it was probably around like 14 or 15 that I went to my first um, 12-step meeting. And I think as a 14, 15-year-old, like a, a mid-teenager, I didn't, if I'm being honest, I didn't really like care about um, recovering. One thing that was big for me to learn kind of later in recovery, like the past couple of years, um, was that 
even though in the moment when it's just you, it doesn't really feel like it affects you very much or it doesn't feel like it affects anybody else. It feels like something that's just, this is something I can go to when I'm struggling with an emotion. And I don't think that's something I really understood back then, but if I'm struggling with an emotion, if I'm struggling with feeling tired or stressed out, this is something I can go to. It's pleasurable. It's easily accessible. It's not hurting anybody else. So in that mindset, I, I went to these meetings and I went to therapy, but I wasn't really super invested in it, if that makes sense. Like I was, that's kind of like the, the saying goes, like you have to hit rock bottom in order to feel like you need to change. I was like, I'm nowhere near rock bottom. I feel like I'm doing fine. So I'm just going to keep going and whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. So, um, it, it, so it sounds like it sounds like your mom didn't make you feel shamed um, and you, you know, didn't really see a reason to change. And so kind of what did that look like for you? Did you just, I mean, it sounds like you saw a therapist and you started going to meetings, but what, how did your recovery look after that? What, was there recovery or was it just kind of continuing in your addiction? Uh, I would say there were, there were a couple of attempts, like right at the beginning, I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to get better. And, um, like I would check in with my mom, like she'd kind of almost be not like a sponsor, but kind of just like a, an accountability aspect. And yeah, so I would check in with her. And then after probably like a month of that, where I was like trying and I felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere. Um, I just kind of was like, well, whatever, I'll just keep doing it. And, um, there were like maybe a couple cycles, like maybe every few months I would kind of like feel the kind of like the twinge of like wanting to stop and I'd go for maybe like a week or two and then just relapse and then kind of give up again and kind of almost feel a little like downtrodden and then kind of turn back to the addiction. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of like that for maybe about like four or five years where it was just kind of like half-hearted every now and then I'll, I'll try and see what I can do. Um, I wasn't really following the steps. I was still kind of holding on to the idea that this isn't a problem for me when I want to, I can just kind of willpower through it and do it all on my own. Uh, and I think that was the first time that I kind of, understood that I can't was when I was about 19 I had probably my first like serious relationship um, and she was the first member of the church that I've ever dated I I don't know why but I just kind of avoided them because I, I think I didn't feel really worthy to date a member because they would kind of look down on me kind of because of my addiction and I ended up dating this girl she found out about it. I don't think I necessarily told her, but I don't think I lied about it. Actually, now that I think about it, I didn't have, when I was 14, I never advanced in the priesthood. Um, I think from the time I was a teacher. And so when you're 19 and you don't have the Melchizedek priesthood, you haven't been on a mission. Um, yeah. I think it just kind of comes up. And so I talked to her about it. I told her it was something that I was working on, which 
might not have been entirely true. And so that was something that we kind of worked on together. And it was the first time that I kind of really saw that this was something that could affect other people and not just me. Um, yeah. It was, it was the first time that I kind of really understood like women, they kind of pin a lot of their self-worth on what their significant other thinks or says or does. Um, and with a pornography addiction where to you, it might feel like this is just a release and it's feels like a separate thing from your relationship to, to women. It's very much like you are going somewhere else because I am not pretty enough because I'm not, um, good enough because I'm not enough, basically just kind of, I'm not enough. And so that's, that's the first time I really felt those feelings. Like, and so that was, that kind of hit hard for me. That wasn't what I would necessarily say my rock bottom, but that was kind of my first glimpse at how, like the ripple effects of what I was doing. Um, and so with that, uh, I decided to go to an, like, start going to a different 12 step meeting. I kind of petered off with going to those for a while. Yeah. And so with kind of that understanding of the kind of those ripple effects that I was having, uh, mm -hmm. I decided to go to an ARP meeting. Um, and I'd kind of, I'd been meeting with my Bishop when I was a youth. And when I moved to a singles ward when I was 18, I kind of just decided not to, I figured, he didn't know, wasn't going to kill him. Um, but as I was kind of going to those 12 set meetings, I felt like it was the best thing to do to also to go meet with my bishop in the New Singles Ward. And I feel like I made some progress. I feel like I was doing pretty well. Um, and it was nice having uh, the support of the girlfriend at the time. And I think I kind of, I, I realized that I don't know if it was necessarily for me that I was kind of doing this. I think I was kind of more doing it for um, the girl I was dating because as soon as she broke up with me, we basically, I kind of just returned right back to where I was before. Um, I wasn't really caring. I was kind of um, doing whatever I wanted to do. I stopped going to meetings. I stopped talking about it. Uh, my mom would still check in every now and then, but that wasn't it's kind of more of a, yeah, I know you're disappointed in me, but I don't really care mm -hmm. kind of feeling. And yeah, so I ended up, I moved to Utah for what felt like no reason in particular. I felt like I was just supposed to be out here. I didn't, like I wasn't going to school. I just kind of started delivering pizzas. Didn't really have a direction. Uh, and then I ended up continuing, like I had another girlfriend, nothing really changed. Um, and then I felt like I kind of just kept getting worse and worse and I, I cared less and less. And then kind of the the one day that really stands out to me uh, was I, I kept going to church but I wouldn't really say I was super active but I went to church one day and I had to run home to grab something and no one was home and I just kind of got an overwhelming feeling of I don't want to say it was like necessarily disappointment from Heavenly Father um, I feel like it was mostly disappointment in myself and kind of like a, I don't know, like a, like a parent when you like, you know, they're, they're frustrated with you, but they're not mad, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. And so I, I knelt down and said a prayer. Like I, 
I felt everything that I've been doing. I felt all the the negative stuff and the negative impact that I, I was having on other people. And I said the prayer and I immediately felt like you're not doing what you should be doing, but I know you can. And it was, that's probably one of the most poignant um, like spiritual moments I've ever had where it almost felt like kind of a, a watered down version of, of Alma when he's uh, in his little sleep coma where he felt all the things that he'd been doing and he felt the, the disappointment and the, and the pain um, and then kind of saw a glimpse of the good stuff, like the joy, the, uh, the happiness and kind of how to get there. Um, and from that moment, I started reading scriptures again. I started praying. I started having a relationship with, with Heavenly Father and I was doing really well. I, I was still seeing my bishop. Um, I was, I was, I don't think I was going to a, a meeting at the time, but I was, I was working really hard with my bishop. Like I would talk like two or three times a week with my bishop just to really kind of get to the place that I wanted to be spiritually. Um, yeah. And had you, um, had you probably progressed into priesthood um, by this point? Is that right? No, I was still a teacher at this time. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So I, I had made some progress throughout the like years, but never really, I feel like never really enough, never really enough like effort put into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, but you had been meeting with your bishop, you've been going to church. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and so, but like I, I was doing that stuff, I wasn't really, I wasn't really praying or reading scriptures. I was just kind of almost like slowly fading away in a sense, like, I probably, if I had kept on that path for like another year or two, I don't know if I'd still be a member of the church. Um, but yeah, Why do so, you say that? Um, I think the, the distance that kind of gets put between you and Heavenly Father, it, it never really like is, like Colin says, like it's, you're never out of reach. But I think I was, I would have gotten to a point where I was out of desire to continue putting forth the effort that I was, even though it was minimal effort. Um, yeah. I think it was still a pretty immature mindset where I felt like I was doing this thing and I felt like I was like, when I was single, I felt like I still wasn't affecting anybody. And I felt a lot of disappointment from the church in general. I don't want to say I was ever shamed for it, but there were moments like, um, I know when I, like one moment that sticks out was I felt like I was being honest with my addiction and I was meeting with my bishop and I was unable to partake of the sacrament. I wasn't able to um, advance in the priesthood. And there were people that I knew were um, like doing drugs, drinking, um, looking at pornography as well, but they weren't honest about it, but they were continuing to like bless the sacrament and stuff that when I was yeah. that age, like that was something that was important to me growing up. Like that's something that's kind of, I know this isn't true, but it's almost like a show of like status and spirituality, but that's something that I was being held back from while people that I knew were just continuing on. It wasn't a big deal and stuff like that was kind of frustrating. Um, and so I think there were 
just some things that were frustrating about the people of the church that I think if I kept on that route when I wasn't there for the spiritual aspect and I was just there for the people, then I probably would have kind of pushed me away, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it sounds like you were in a way being punished for your honesty. It, it seems like you were being really honest with your bishop, honest with yourself. And, and it feels like, you know, if you had lied and gone to your bishop, he probably would have, um, you know, given you a temple recommend, advanced you in the priesthood, let you bless the sacrament. Um, but it seems like because you were honest, you weren't able to do those things. And, and it's not to say you definitely, you know, maybe could have, um, you know, I don't know, changed your life and, and been worthy and done those things. But your honesty about where you were at was stopping you from doing that. And I, I think that's significant because, you know, a lot of people, myself included, on the other end of the spectrum where I, I definitely leaned, have leaned away from honesty in my life and more towards kind of the people that you're seeing who are blessing the sacrament, but are like living in like sin, living in addiction. And, um, and so I think that, I think that says a lot about your character um, that you were willing to, you know, not do those things because you, you, you knew you weren't worthy. So I think that says a lot about you and I think that's really awesome, um, but that is hard. So where do things go from there? Um, yeah, so I was, so I had, I did, had this spiritual experience with my prayer. I was working really hard with my bishop. Um, I ended up going to, uh, I got a summer job working at Aspen Grove, which is uh, just up Provo Canyon from BYU. And it's like a BYU run uh, summer camp for families. And so I go up there. It's a, it's a really amazing place. You're up kind of secluded in the mountains. Uh, I was like living in a cabin for four months. Um, cool. but I got there probably about a month before a lot of the staff did just to kind of help get the camp set up. And during that time I was, I felt like I was probably at one of my highest moments spiritually ever. I was, I was really taking in as much as I could, like reading scriptures at every opportunity, praying the most consistently I've ever prayed in my life. And I felt like I had a really good relationship with with Heavenly Father and kind of a really good grasp on the atonement. And I was doing really well addiction wise. It'd probably been about maybe three or four months, which was the longest stretch I'd ever done. And then someone comes in and tries to ruin it all. So a, a girl came up there and we kind of been hanging out a little bit and she starts catching feelings for me. And, but yeah, so we progressed quickly. We decided we want to get married. I was still, it's still been, by the end of camp, I think it had been about six months since my last relapse, um, which was amazing to me. Like, it was incredible. And the frustration we had, it kind of goes back to the, the honesty thing, is that uh, I told her parents that I wanted to marry her, and I was very honest with them about my past. I didn't go on a mission. I had been struggling with this for a while. Um, there was some other stuff that was not ideal, like my parents were divorced. Um, I had kind of a falling away from the church for a while, like not fully, but like I kind of told them what I told you. And they basically said, you can't marry my daughter. And wow, that's crazy. Yeah. How do you feel about that? <laughs> uh, I mean, it was kind of the feeling that I talked about earlier with like people being able to bless the sacrament and go on yeah. missions and everything while I like I was stuck behind it was kind of that feeling times like maybe 10 
because at this point it was fully like it felt like her parents saying I understand that you're that you feel like you're a fine person now I think that you are all of your missteps in life I feel like you are your addiction I feel like you are not a righteous person I feel like you are not worthy of our daughter so there was a lot of tension with that um Abby, so my wife, Abby struggles with anxiety and depression. That was probably the hardest time for her ever uh, because her family was essentially forcing her to choose between her family that she loves and this guy that she loves and wants to spend the rest of her life with. And kind of what made that even worse was, or made it worse for us was we ended up getting engaged and maybe a week after we got engaged i ended up having my first relapse in at that point i want to say it was eight or nine months um it was the first relapse that abby had ever experienced with me and like i said earlier like i I never struggled with honesty i told her immediately after and that was probably one of the scariest moments of my life where i felt like i was fulfilling her parents um kind of vision of me and kind of making it so her entire future was going to be the emotional fallout of dealing with relapses just over and over again Um, and we weren't married so my first thought was she's just she's gonna leave me like was kind of that that shame that I feel like a lot of people are familiar with that I am not who I've been putting this front on I am a terrible person um I'm not worthy of my fiance's love. And for Abby, it was it was a very hard experience for her. Um, I think she did an amazing job of handling it. Um, she told me she needed space. She needed time to kind of think about it. Um, but the whole time she was away, she was very loving. She would text me messages just asking how I was doing, making sure I was doing all right, and I wasn't going to... Um, kind of compound my mistakes and we ended up getting through it we talked about uh, what to do moving forward and we decided to uh, go back to a 12-step program and that's that's the group that I met uh, Matt and Katie in and we we really loved that group so we've been going to that we've made a ton of friends and different supportive people through that I mean, we met Matt and Katie, so I mean, there's a plus in its own right. Yeah, so it's it's just been amazing. From there, I've like I've gone through, I want to say like four, three or four times. I've gone through the twelve steps. Um, obviously, when you go through the first time, it takes a long time, and it's it can be a struggle, especially with stuff like uh, like the inventory. It's yeah. it's hard for a lot of people to get through that. Um, and then going through kind of the, uh, making step eight, step eight and nine, it's making amends. Yeah. So make a written list of all persons you've harmed and then actually going to make restitution to them. Those ones can be hard as well to get through that. And then, uh, we actually got to a point where I think at one point I had about two, two years and nine months of recovery under my belt. Uh, unfortunately, I did have a relapse after that, but um, 
I've been facilitating. I've been doing what I can to help other people um, through their addictions. And yeah, that's kind of where I am now. We've it's it's been hard with the pandemic with uh, only being call-in meetings. It's been just hard for me to deal with. And so I haven't been doing as much as I probably should. But yeah, that's kind of where I am now. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I really love, I love to hear your story. I, I do remember those early days when I, I started going to the 12 step meetings. I started a little bit after you. Um, and I, I don't know, I just, for me, you were someone that, you know, I started going and I was, I was having a lot of relapses, struggling with a lot of honesty, stuff like that, really for um, about a year. And I just remember, um, from, from what I remember, you had been just sober basically the entire time I was there. And I remember, I think you either got, you became a facilitator or you were just, you know, like three, 400 days sober. Um, and I was just like, man, like if I had just, you know, stayed sober from when my wife found out about this, I would be maybe 30 days behind you. And um, I, you know, everyone has their own, their own kind of speed, their own timeline. Um, but I, I do, I, I always remember like thinking that and just, I don't know, I don't know why you were that person for me, but like, I just always looked at you and I was like, if I had just, you know, been sober this time or not relapsed or whatever. And um, yeah, I just always looked up to you in the way that you kind of were such a rock of recovery for me. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and I think to kind of speak on that, like when I started going to meetings as well, there were definitely people like that where you're like, that person has like a thousand days of recovery. Like that's insane. Like they're, it's, it feels like it looks so easy for them. But I think the hard part with that is you don't see like, in the case of me, like you, you weren't able to see the 20, 30, 50, a hundred times that I, that I tried to, to get over an addiction and failed and lasted four days, lasted two days. Um, like, I think that's something that I've talked about with a, a few different people where when all, when all you see is this person's been sober for 500 days like it's hard to kind of put yourself in that situation of the beginning of their recovery uh, and I I think just kind of talking to people and understanding their stories is super helpful in kind of getting over a lot of that almost that like discouragement of like it almost looked, looking like this big mountain you have to climb when really it's just a step in front of you yeah I couldn't agree more I do feel like um, I, I'm really entrepreneurial in like my um, my life and I I always see these people with these businesses or like uh, you hear like you know this guy's got this like business but it really is you don't see the the 12 years that happened before that and I agree with you about the the one step at a time thing I think you know if I had looked at my recovery when I first started going to meetings and um, I think it's a huge blessing that you you know kind of you've been doing these meetings and this 12 step thing for a long time but if I had looked at it you know in the beginning I I don't know, it would have been maybe too big a hurdle for me to like go through. But when you just take it one day at a time, um, you know, there's growth there. I, I do think the the hard part about that though is on the other end of the spectrum, if you just take it one day at a time, for me at least, um, you know, without the bigger goal in mind, then I, yeah. I get caught in the trenches and I'm, I just keep relapsing, keeping all these things. And then, you know, you look back and it's, it's been a year and you're like, wow, 
how did I make no progress in that year? And so, you know, I think yeah. there's two sides to that coin too. Yeah. But I think kind of thinking about that kind of like one step at a time and kind of, kind of the, the slow approach to it. Like I, I love how one thing that's always stood out to me is kind of the way that these uh, 12 steps are kind of organized. Um, I feel like when you hear like 12 steps, you're like, cool. The first step is going to be like this big action of just cut off everything involving pornography. The second one's going to be like anything that could potentially trigger you ever just cut it out of your life. But like the first step is just, Hey, just understand and like know and admit that you have an addiction and that's, that's it. Like the first step is just, I have an addiction and that's just something I need to understand. And um, kind of, I know you, you sent me like a questionnaire before this about like, which one's your favorite step. And one of them that stood out to me was um, step six, where it says become entirely ready to have God remove all of your character weaknesses. And step seven is then actually ask heavenly father to remove your shortcomings. Step six is you don't have to do anything. You just have to kind of, think about the different areas in your life that you struggle and think about um, like for me, one of the big things was understand that you have terrible self-control and just, just understand that you have terrible self-control and just be ready to let that not be a thing in your life. And like, that's not a hard thing to do. Like it's not like a, this massive step. It's just, be ready to get rid of this and understand what kind of needs to needs to change within you. And then step seven is just ask for it to be taken away. So I don't know. I feel like the steps just do a very good job of taking what kind of seems like a daunting task and breaking it up into very doable, very, um, very step-by-step things. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, I always feel like the steps for me, um, they don't necessarily give you, you know, a complete framework on the day to day of like, wake up and do this, don't do that, you know, stuff like that. But I feel like they give you a very lasting, um, like place to go for healing. And yeah. I think a lot of that is because it connects you with Jesus Christ, it connects you with like, um, understanding kind of deeper about yourself. I think one of the ways that it just does that so powerfully is just taking you through these, these steps. And, and I, I too, I love step six and I love the same thing you love about it, which is that like, it's not, I'm not really doing anything here except, you know, I'm, I'm recognizing, you know, and, and looking for a desire deep within me to accept like Jesus Christ sort of in my life and yeah, accept like, like his grace. Yeah, that's all it is. And um, I think that's so powerful. And I think, you know, I think getting through the steps is one of the best things that people can do just for lasting and true recovery. And um, so I agree with that. Um, I want to ask you a little bit. It seems like you have a lot of experience with going to meetings, with working through the 12 steps. I want to ask you a little bit about the meetings. Um, and you also kind of have, you know, an, an experience background of, you, know, you work to Aspen Grove, you're it's kind of what you're doing your degree in, where you're looking for, um, looking to work after, after you graduate, stuff like that. Um, what do you think it is like about the, 
kind of atmosphere, I guess, just about the 12 step meetings that um, allows people to change and to grow and to feel um, I, what, what is it that you feel like helps people or has helped you even? Uh, yeah, so I think the um, kind of the first thing that comes to mind is going to my first couple meetings. Um, it almost felt like a humanizing experience where I feel like when I was struggling with um, pornography by myself, for me particularly, I almost got to a point where as as like pleasurable as it can feel like during like viewing pornography and stuff, I felt like right after everything was done, I would almost like kind of look around and be like, where am I? What did I do? Like, I feel like that wasn't even me. I feel like it wasn't, I, I felt like almost, almost inhuman and like disgusting afterwards. And I think I kind of like felt like that was just me. I'm this terrible person. I'm this just gross human being. Um, but going to meetings and kind of seeing different people, um, seeing just kind of all of these just regular people that are a lot like you and a lot like people that you love and a lot like people that you're friends with, like it helped me to understand that I am not my addiction and my addiction is not like, doesn't make up who I am. Um, and I can still be a great person that struggled with something. Whereas before I felt like I am this terrible person who is faking it to the rest of the world that I can be normal or be good, if that makes sense. And I think it also helps to kind of be around people to, to kind of get a different perspective on like what I've been trying for eight plus years. Maybe it's not the best way. Maybe I'm lying to myself about like what I'm capable of lying to myself about like what I, what I can and can't do within the bounds of being someone who has an addiction um, and kind of getting different strategies on how to, to tackle different aspects of the addiction, if that makes sense. So like, I think the first thing that comes to mind was it was kind of insane to me the, the first time I ever heard of someone getting rid of a smartphone to, uh, to get a little flip phone because in my mind, like you have a smartphone and you have to be better. And I had a smartphone and I never got better, but I saw someone who had the kind of the strength to admit to themselves that I have problems with self-control. I need to put this kind of boundary on myself in order for me to progress. And maybe sometime I'll get back to, to being someone who can have a smartphone and not abuse that power, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. I feel like when I kind of think about the meetings and why there's, they've been so helpful to me, I think a lot of it is intangible in the sense that I can't really say like how, you know, why someone can't just do it alone. I mean, I have a lot of good reasons, 
But I think one of the biggest is just that you go there and you are surrounded by people who at that moment, at least, this is like the most important thing in their lives and, and everyone is at a different stage. And so like you, I mean, I've, I've had you know, various degrees of filters and um, you know, like I've deleted a lot of apps on my phone, a lot of social media, stuff like that. And I, I don't know if I would have had those ideas on my own or you know, ideas for ideas about dailies, um, getting a sponsor, stuff like that. I just feel like those came directly from going to the meeting and just being surrounded by people who are sharing ideas, sharing. It's like a, a big brainstorming session in a way uh, where you're also just super inspired. So I agree with that. Yeah, I, I think another point that um, I don't know why this wasn't the first point that I thought of, but just having people that I can um, network with and reach out to that really understand kind of those feelings that I'm going through as much as I would like, as much I would love to say that Abby can, um, can help me like when I am feeling like tempted or feeling like the desire to do things that I shouldn't. Uh, I don't know if she'll ever really understand like the exact feelings that I'm feeling when that's coming around, because to her, it's probably just some feeling that, she has like a vague kind of idea of like I've been tempted to lie about something before but that feeling is like so far away from the feeling of an addiction that I now have like 10 other guys that I could text if I need to that know exactly what I've been through and have gone through all of these feelings and emotions before that can really help me to kind of talk myself down. Like they know what works for them. They know um, what situations are not good to be in. They know how to get out of those because they've done it and they, they've been there before. And that's something that you can't really get in a lot of other places. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I agree, man. I, it's, it's crazy. I feel like you walk into an average ward on Sunday and I, I bet maybe 50, at least 50% of the guys that are struggle with pornography in some way. But, um, but I mean, it's not disclosed. No one knows about it. You're, you just feel so isolated. Whereas when you go to a meeting, you know, everyone there just purely out of context is, um, is struggling. And, and I think that networking that you're talking about, I think that's one of the most underrated aspects of meetings. And I think it's something that's very downplayed right now during um, like this pandemic, just because everything's all over the phone. Yeah. And so there's not that, um, like those conversations, those like, um, exchanging phone numbers before and after yeah. the meetings and stuff. I always try to make a point of when I facilitate, um, of giving everyone my phone number, just because I, I'd love people to call me. I'd love to be kind of the central network. If, if they're looking for a facilitator, either I, or a sponsor, either I can sponsor them or point them somewhere, or you know, if they have questions, it's just, it's so hard to create that atmosphere right now. And so, I'm looking forward to that aspect of going back to the meetings for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely been hard for me not to kind of be able to see people face to face and to um, to really just kind of get to know people. I feel yeah. like it's almost. I mean, I know I was kind of like talking about this earlier in a negative way, but like it's almost like the only way I really know this person is as their addiction. Where yeah. I can't really get that that context to who they are, what they're doing with their life. Like, um, it's it's just been hard for me. So, I've been struggling with attendance with those, but I'm 
I'm very excited to, to go back to face-to-face -face meetings because I don't know if you, you were probably kind of near the tail end of this. There was a while with, uh, with our group meetings with like our wives and ourselves um, where we were inviting people to, to come hang out afterwards if they were comfortable with it, obviously, like some people yeah. with their addiction, they were, they don't want to really kind of breach that barrier of an ARP meeting and like friends. Um, but we have still a lot of people that don't go to the meetings anymore that we hang out with just because we kind of developed a culture of openness and friendship and kind of getting to know people beyond just this is someone I see once a week for 85 90 minutes just to talk about addictions like we want to we want to get to know you like we know that you're good people that just struggle with this thing that I also struggle with and so it's it made a really good culture where we could all be open with each other uh, we could we felt like we could trust all of the people in the group because we, we don't want to break that friendship or that bond of trust that comes with an ARP group. So I yeah, thought it was a really good culture. I agree. I, I really love that aspect of the culture and I, you're a lot better at it than I am. I'm, I'm not always the best at, um, you know, connecting in a deeper way with people, but I, I think there's so much value there. It is something that has caused me like a lot of worry um, lately. It's just how many people are, you know, either not calling into the meetings that need to, um, or how many people are calling into the meetings and just kind of not finding what they're looking for, what they might have found at an in-person meeting, um, you know, stuff like that. And it just like scares me um, to think of just those guys that are kind of alone, pretty isolated, calling into the meetings. You know, it's a good meeting, it's inspiring, but like, you know, there's no connection there and there's no, so, so I, I wish that we could find a, a better way to do it. I, I don't know. Maybe we need to start like a, I don't know, like a social media, uh, like account or something uh, just where everyone can come in and talk about what's going on in their lives. But I, I don't know. I wish there was a better way to, to find that right now and even in the future as well. So. Yeah. I think especially not having understanding that like there's the reason for not having the in-person meetings, but also the reason that they're, not having the in-person meetings of not wanting to be a lot of people together is also a reason that a lot of people are probably struggling a lot right now. Like for me, totally. like I felt like I was someone that, um, that was relatively strong with like recovery and with being able to, um, to get through the addiction without relapsing. I have struggled probably more than I have, in the past like four years just in the past like six months where it's we're not able to get out we're not able to to be around the people that we want to be around we're not able to um to really do a lot of the stuff that helps us like for me like getting out playing basketball being with people like those are things that really help me to kind of relieve stress and also to um just when i'm when i'm struggling like going and being around people is something that will always help me get through a particularly challenging or tempting time. And that's something that we're not, it's almost like bad of you to do those things now. Like it's, it's a hard, it's kind of a catch 22 where 
being around people is going to help you, but you can't be around people and you can't be around people to talk about how hard it is being around people or not being around people. So it's, it's, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm very excited for things to just kind of be done with COVID. I feel like I'm the only person that wants COVID to go away, but uh, no, it's, I'm just, I'm very excited for when stuff goes back to at least somewhat normal and we can, we can have that kind of escape of being in a meeting. So. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, just like to kind of wrap this up with just a few questions. Um, what advice do you have for someone who has never been to a meeting? Um, you mean besides go to a meeting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, when, I mean, obviously when things open back up, like go to a meeting, even if it's just stopping in, you don't want to say anything. I think just seeing other people um, being willing to openly share their stories and kind of their struggles is something that will at least help you feel like you can start the recovery process. Um, kind of like I said earlier, it'll help you kind of feel less shame, more more human, like everybody sins. This is just your sin that you're dealing with right now. Um, and then I would also say, I feel like a lot of people talk about the 12 step. I feel like there's also just the, for me, a big thing that was um, kind of a psychological thing that helped me was just kind of being aware of what situations like kind of breed temptation for you. Um, for me, it took a long time to kind of really isolate like the situations. Like for me, like being home alone, if I'm home alone, I immediately like am on higher alert, like reach out to my wife with frequency, like just kind of let her know like, hey, I'm doing good. I'm thinking about something that is not a temptation, just kind of like letting her know my mindset. Um, but I think like kind of isolating those and being able to understand those and then actually having the self-control to when you're in that situation, either get out of it or reach out to someone, talk to someone, kind of put up those walls that will help you stay away from the, the mindset of seeking out uh, pornography. And yeah, those, those have been huge for me. What about yeah, you? I, what advice do I have? Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's, there's a lot there and it's, it's hard. I always, um, it's hard to know exactly to share, but I think, um, you know, at this moment for me, the biggest thing is you're not going to be in your addiction forever. And I think re recognizing that uh, if you do put in effort, you can get through this. Um, but I think on kind of a different scale, I think, I think a lot about how, um, you know, there are, there are things that you can do definitely to um, avoid your addiction. I think filters, um, deleting social media, stuff like that, all of that is so worth it um, just to get kind of away from it initially. And maybe even long-term, there are some apps that I just, I don't go on still, or I only go on with my wife. But I think getting that initial distance between you and your addiction is, is so critical. And then I think getting through the steps um, is just that to me, I see it kind of as like, get away from your addiction as much as you can and start working on the steps um, and like going to meetings, obviously. 
And I, I see a lot of people, man, step four is a, is a killer. And I see so many people get caught up on it and just, it grinds them down and they, they like never finish. Um, and it's such a, it's so sad to me to see people get, get lost in the steps and not be able to make it through just because, you know, step five, so powerful Step six and seven. Those are like you and I, they're, they're our favorites. Um, um, and then, you know, eight, nine, 10, the maintenance steps, 10, 11, 12, um, just there's so much power there. And I would just, my advice would just be, you know, get some distance between you and your addiction and then, and work through the steps and you're going to have probably relapses. You're going to have like struggles, hard times. You might not see success for a long time, but um, if you can work through the steps and just decide you're going to do it and finish it up, um, I promise you'll, you'll see differences. So that would be my advice. Yeah. I, I think that, I, I think that it is so important to know that like, these steps are basically like how to do repentance. Yeah. And I think, I think that at the beginning you can feel like I've, I've definitely felt multiple times in my life that I, I'm just a t- like, I'm a trash person. Like I'm just not worth anyone's time. Um, I keep doing these things that I know are bad and I know are kind of like, it feels like it's like killing my spirit, but I felt like that. And I've been at the beginning of step one and I've gotten through everything. And I know that, that Christ atoned for everybody. He has the power to bring anyone back from anything. It's just a matter of putting forth the effort, having that desire to change. Like I told you, I, I had no desire to change and I got nowhere and that makes sense. But when I had a real desire to change for myself um, and you're ready to sacrifice things in your life in order to get to where you want to go and kind of be the person that you want to be, Christ helps you along the way. And he, I have, I've been in countless moments where I've been tempted and, um, and reaching out to Christ, the temptation just vanishes. And it's it's one of the best feelings, just knowing that, um, that Christ is behind you and wants you to recover and wants you to, um, to get to where you want to be. And I know that through the steps and, and through repentance and prayer and having a relationship with Christ and Heavenly Father, that I, I know it's possible. Yeah, that's a powerful testimony. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate this whole interview today. Um, you've just, you've been open and vulnerable and, uh, and honest. And I, I know that there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this and, and relate to exactly what you're saying. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for listening. We would love for you to rate and review this podcast as well as share it with everyone you know. For information about the church's 12-step and support meetings, please visit arp.churchofjesuschrist.org. We encourage everyone to find a sponsor or support person. If you have any questions, feedback, are looking for a sponsor, or would like to be a sponsor, please contact us at sobrietypodcast at gmail.com. We are always looking for more guests, so if you or anyone you know would like to be interviewed, please contact us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.